So, Father, we love you. We come to you now, digging into your word, this very meaty piece of scripture, God. And just as you responded to Nicodemus right now, we pray, God, that you would not give us an answer that we want to hear, but you would give us the answer that we need. This passage is going to hold something different for so many different people in this room, including myself, God. And we just pray right now that you would speak to our hearts and that you would clear our minds of the things that we brought in here with us. So just take a minute, church, and ask God to to open your heart to what he has to say today. Lord, hear our prayers. And so we give you this time, God. Speak to us, please. As we want to hear what you have to say. In your name, amen. Well, we're in a new series this week. uh, Face-to-face encounters with Jesus. And I'm really excited about this series because I think each and every one of us, through our lives, we have these moments where we encounter Jesus. And I would love sometime, if I had all the time in the world, to sit down and to hear each of your stories. Because I'm sure that every single one of us has a very unique story to tell about how we have encountered Christ in our life. The scripture lays out all kinds of these accounts. And this morning, we're going to take a look at a man by the name of Nicodemus. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you remember who Nicodemus is? I feel like Nicodemus is one of these persons in the story of Christ's life that is very easily forgotten about. But what's absolutely amazing about Nicodemus is he's actually throughout Christ's entire ministry. When we're going to read an account today, this isn't the only mention of Nicodemus. A couple chapters later, we're going to hear about him again. And then even a couple chapters later, we're going to hear about him again. And I think Nicodemus is a great example of how a lot of us have encountered God. I was talking with a a, a student um, a couple weeks ago, a person that I'm in classes with, and we were talking about how it's funny when you're in that education process and you're sitting in class and the teacher, the professor, and some of you are teachers and, and you know what we're talking about. And all of us have been students and so I think everybody knows what we're talking about. But there's that moment where you have no idea what the teacher's talking about. Have you ever had that moment? Some of you are thinking every time you step up there, Jamie, I'm having that moment. But we have these moments where we just don't understand what's being talked about. And I was talking with this student, and um, I said, hey, I want to thank you for asking your questions in class. He said, what do you mean? I feel like everybody's annoyed with me. I feel like I drive everybody nuts because I honestly don't know what he's talking about. Unless I ask these questions, I I don't understand what he's saying. And so I have to ask these questions. And, And I said to this kid, I said, you know... You're, you're looked at by all the other students as like our helper because none of us understand what's being taught. And, and, and we're confused sometimes. And because you have the guts to ask the questions that we're all afraid to ask, we all have an understanding of what we're supposed to know. And I love how Nicodemus is kind of that guy in the passage this morning. Because you see, there's quite a background to this story um, And and Nicodemus really is representing a larger group of people when he asks three simple questions, really only two questions. But there's something amazing here because Nicodemus, 
even though it's politically not correct, even though he's probably going to get in trouble, even though it's going to look bad for him to go to this new Jesus character, he still raises his hand and he asks a question. And even though it's nighttime, and even though it's dark, Nicodemus still goes to Jesus. And I think there's a lot of us out there that regardless of the circumstances, we need to go to Jesus. See, where this story begins is actually in chapter 2. And as I do each week, I want to give you some homework today. When you go home with your families, I want you to to take the the book of John, and I want you to start in chapter 2. Because you see, Jesus is kind of coming into his ministry here. He has yet to really do any public miraculous things. He's, he's just kind of growing. He's got his disciples lining up. And he and his mother and a few of the disciples, they're invited to this wedding. And I love this moment in the scriptures because it shows us that very human relationship between Jesus and his mom. They go to this wedding. It must be a really good wedding because they run out of wine. And in the process, Jesus' mother says, Oh, son, can't you do something about this? I mean, it's in the scriptures that way. She literally looks at her son and says this. It's found in John 2. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, uh, excuse me, Jesus, is, uh, and Jesus and his disciples had been also invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And I love Jesus' very human response. And I want to point out, that some of us respond to our parents in certain ways that aren't really loving. And sometimes we can joke and respond in ways that really are loving. And I want to assure you, Jesus' response here is not a response of annoyance. It's an affectionate play. Because what comes out of his mouth next, I just love. He says, woman, why are you involving me in this? He says, dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. And just like the good mother that Mary is, she completely ignores what he has to say and says, okay, do whatever Jesus tells you and it's going to be okay. And what's interesting is, is this moment at this wedding, um, it becomes Jesus' kind of breaking out moment. He creates wine to save the, the, the face of this couple. And, and, and it's just this simple little thing where, where Mary almost kind of as that, that mom just annoying him saying, Jesus, do something about this. How many of you have mothers that you're in a situation and she goes, oh, you've got to do something about this? You know how Jesus feels right now. So Jesus does what we would call a very minor miracle, but is actually quite fantastic. Because in this moment, something miraculous happens, and word begins to spread that there's this man from Galilee. He just made the party awesome. So they go on from there. Chapter 2 continues on. The the wedding is, is moving on, and Jesus and his disciples, they go to Capernaum for a couple days, and then they end up heading to Jerusalem. And while they're in Jerusalem, Jesus goes to his father's house, the temple. And when he walks in, what he sees turns him into this righteously angry person. And and I want to tell you, Jesus never sinned. And sometimes it is right for us to be angry. And in this moment, Jesus says, you have turned my father's house into something it's not supposed to be. 
He says, you have turned it into a market. And Jesus flips over the tables. It says he actually made a whip out of some rope, and he starts driving everybody out. The scripture tells us after this that Jesus began to do miraculous signs and did things that were causing wonderment among the people. Let me tell you something. If somebody marched through the doors of our sanctuary right now and started chucking everything off the stage, you're going to notice, right? So Jesus first makes the party better, then he goes to Jerusalem and makes a splash. Jesus has drawn attention to who he is, and he's proclaiming something pretty grand. And that doesn't separate from the story of Nicodemus, because you see, who Nicodemus is, is somebody pretty popular. He's somebody pretty powerful. He's, uh, it says in the scriptures that Nicodemus is one of the Pharisees. And what a Pharisee is, is somebody who is really holy. It's somebody that really holds to those Mosaic laws, the Old Testament laws. They, they are very purposeful about making sure everybody knows that they're holy. And, you know, they're really supposed to try to be holy. And so we know that, that this, this, this guy that we're talking about here today, this, you know, Nicodemus fellow, he's righteous. He's law-keeping. He's honoring of God in the custom in which he was raised. That's what makes him a Pharisee. We're also told that he's a rabbi. So not only is this guy righteous, he's a teacher. He's, He's an equipper of the saints. Like this guy really knows his stuff and he's teaching people. So Nicodemus is a rabbi. So he's got a political position being held by being a Pharisee. He's got an a educational position being held by being a rabbi or a ministerial position being held by being a rabbi. Nicodemus is a kind of a big deal. Now we're going to throw on this last thing about Nicodemus. It says that Nicodemus was also one of the Sanhedrin. If we had a member of the Supreme Court of the United States in our church, we would know it, wouldn't we? Nicodemus is basically a member of the Supreme Court of his day. He's a deeply rooted politician. And he's a righteous man who teaches the word of God. Nicodemus is kind of a big deal. You catching that? And so as we read this passage, it's important for us to remember that if some guy shows up in the temple and is going to begin to claim that he's the son of God in a Jewish traditioned world, this is outrageous. But see, Nicodemus notices something that is absolutely blowing his mind. That this man who calls himself Jesus is doing amazing things. As a Pharisee, he actually probably got a big kick out of Jesus cleaning up the temple. If he was truly a righteous Pharisee, he appreciated Jesus' move. But when Jesus began to go around doing miraculous signs and doing things of wonderment, this would cause everybody in the Jewish realm to really begin to question things. In fact, question everything that you've ever been taught. And so Nicodemus sees something in these miraculous signs and these miraculous wonders going on in Jerusalem. He's heard about this wedding. Who is this man? And so some night, it's dark outside. 
Nicodemus, stirred in his heart, decides he's going to go and he's going to figure out what's going on because clearly there's something to this man, Jesus. I love that a lot of people like to make quite a bit out of the fact that Nicodemus went to Jesus at night. Why do you think he did that? Why do you think he waited until it was dark? Well, as a politician, as a teacher, as a, as a man of the people, he couldn't be seen conspiring with this man. Because what if people thought, I believe what this guy was saying. What if, what if people thought something that, that I'm some kind of Jesus freak? Or, or, or what if they thought I was some kind of weirdo who just, I, I don't know. And so Nicodemus was afraid. Have you, have you ever been afraid to be seen with Jesus in broad daylight? Have you ever been afraid to be caught with the king? Some say that's why Nicodemus went in the night. Some people say it's because he wanted Jesus just to himself. Regardless, we have to applaud Nicodemus because he still went to Jesus. There's a lot of us that like to make excuses as to why we don't come to Jesus. But there's never a bad time to go to Jesus. Because it tells us in our scripture that Nicodemus went to Jesus in the nighttime. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi. So when Nicodemus calls Jesus Rabbi, this is a very important statement. Because when Nicodemus refers to Rabbi Jesus, one rabbi calling another person a rabbi is submitting to that authority. He's proclaiming that Jesus has authority. So right away, Nicodemus starts this conversation off in a very different manner. He's giving respect to Jesus. He's honoring Christ when he says rabbi. He then says, we know you are a good teacher. You are a teacher who comes from God. Who does he mean when he says we? Is he sent to represent the the greater pharisaical group? Is he sent to represent the Sanhedrin? Who is he speaking of? For no one could perform the miraculous signs that you are doing if God were not with him. I love this moment because, you see, Nicodemus starts in with this statement of saying, you are mighty, you are majestic, there's something about you. And this is what I love about Jesus. Because Jesus never answers our questions. And I want you to hear how I'm saying this. Jesus answers our needs. And right now, Nicodemus is kind of beating around the bush about what his real question is. And Jesus' response here to this statement, it's not even really a question, is it's a response not to his statement, but it's a response to what Nicodemus' actual need is. Nicodemus never tells us what his need is, but Jesus does in this statement. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So what do you think was really on Nicodemus' heart? How can I be with God? He saw something in Jesus. And based on this answer from Christ, we're led to believe that something is happening in Nicodemus' heart. I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, to you and I, that doesn't sound very revolutionary, does it? 
I mean, we have a society in a day and age today where we can take a a picture or a video of what a a baby looks like inside of the womb. But, But now in this day, to say you have to be born again, there hasn't been the Jimmy Carters of the world. There hasn't been Billy Graham. There hasn't been the John Guest who we use that term, be born again. This is a brand new term. And so here's this man who, who Nicodemus is struggling with. Maybe he really is the Son of God. And he says, you've got to be born again. That What? What does that mean? I want you to think about what that would sound like to you if you had no prior thinking of that terminology, that Christianese. Because Nicodemus then asks the question, he says, Whoa, how can a man be born again when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Now we can read that as, okay, he's being a smart aleck. Or I think we can read it for what it really is. I I think Nicodemus is just genuinely confused. What do you mean I must be born again? I follow the temple laws. I'm I'm obedient to what Moses told us. What do you mean i got to be born again? I tell you the truth. That no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit, Jesus says. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should, not, uh, you should not be surprised at my sayings that you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell it where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What Jesus is saying here is, 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 look, you need to be remade. Your sin has broken you, and no amount of Mosaic law, no amount of good behavior is going to help you. What you need to be is completely reborn and redone. Don't pay attention to the snow on the roof, but you need to be reborn of the Spirit. You need to be reborn completely. That means as Christians, when we're wounded, we don't need mended. We need reborn. We redo, reset, done over. And Jesus is telling us the only way into the kingdom of God is to let God make us over again. Are you following with me, church? I love how Nicodemus' statements get shorter and shorter. He then says this to Jesus. How can this be? He's still baffled. How can I be born again? You're Israel's teacher, Jesus says. And yet you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. Our testimony meaning the testimony of God. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? He says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up a snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Do you know what they're talking about when they say the serpent that was lifted up in the desert? In the story of Numbers, there's this moment where the people of Israel are getting bit by snakes. God says, lift this this bronze snake up and, and it'll purify the poison. Isn't that beautiful? Here's Jesus speaking to someone very versed in the Old Testament. And he says, the Son of Man must be lifted up just like that snake and the poison will be purified. It will be removed. It will be gone. 
He says, I must be lifted up. He's basically telling Nicodemus, as we're going to see in the next statement, that nobody can get to heaven except through me. He then goes in verse 16, and we all know this. And I, and I really want to challenge you, don't just commit John 3.16 to memory. Commit 16, 17, and 18. Because this is, a, the, this is the most potent theological statement in Scripture, is John 3, because we see it all. We see that, that God, in fact, does not hate us. Do you know there's teachings out there right now that, that God hates us? Because we're sinful, broken creatures? God does not hate you. He hates the sin that is in us. Jesus says Himself, For God so loved the world that He sent His Son to save it, not condemn it. Listen to me. God loves you. He wants to purify the sin in your life and be gone with it. He wants to heal you. I don't care what your sin is. God sent Jesus To make you new. He wants you to dwell with Him in eternity. He says this in John 3.16, and these are the words of Scriptures, not mine. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. And whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Man, we forget that one, don't we? We don't like that one. I don't like that one. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. The story comes full circle. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light. Do you think think hearing this story of Nicodemus, it's dark out, I'm afraid, I'm embarrassed to be seen with Jesus, coming out of the darkness, do do you think this is coincidental? Or do you think God's really trying to tell us something here, that Nicodemus is coming out of darkness and he's stepping into the home of light? He's having Jesus revealed to him in this moment. And his desire is for us to not love darkness, but to embrace the light, to step into the light. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that, we, that what he has done has been done through God. What a, what a powerful moment. And then Nicodemus disappears. We don't hear about Nicodemus again. You just had this beautiful oration by Christ that I came to save those who will accept me as their Lord and Savior. I want for you to step out of darkness and step into my light. I don't want you to be ashamed to be with me, but I want you to know that I love you. And this is where I really just love Nicodemus' story because it continues. Do you remember that moment when Jesus is being brought before the courts? 
Remember that moment where everybody's just kind of selling Jesus out? His disciples have abandoned him. Peter is denying him. There's somebody else standing there in this moment. We give the Pharisees a very hard time about the crucifixion of Jesus, but not all of the Pharisees were saying the words crucify. Because if you turn your Bible to John 7, we see a very familiar name. John 7, 50. It's a very brief moment, but I think a very powerful moment. The Pharisees are... They're crucifying Jesus. They're taking him to task. And a man by the name of Nicodemus says these words. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, one of the Pharisees, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him or finding out what he is doing? Nicodemus, a Pharisee, defended Jesus in this moment. And so from that moment of darkness, when he stepped out of darkness into the light of Christ, we see growth, don't we? Fearful for being seen with Jesus at one moment, he's now defending Jesus in front of the Pharisees. But see, he's human. And the Pharisees are knuckleheads. (laughs) And they say, what, are you a Galilean too? as we all know in this moment, is a very political threat at the very life of Nicodemus. And to put it in our terms, they're basically saying, shut your mouth. In fear, Nicodemus does just that. Have you ever had one of those moments where you've tried to stand for Christ? You've tried to be a part of the light, but in your fear... You just were silent. Nicodemus' story isn't done yet. I want to challenge you to turn to John 19, 38. Because you see, we're seeing growth in Nicodemus. Nicodemus wasn't afraid to ask questions. And when he asked questions, he listened to what the Lord was saying. And he took the hard moments in his life and he began to grow And here at the crucifixion of Jesus, we see, yet again, a familiar name in Nicodemus. The passage is John 19, 38 through 42. It says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. Hmm. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds, and taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it in the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. So here you have Nicodemus, terrified to be seen with Jesus in one moment. 
has this incredible experience where Jesus says, I am the only way. You can only see heaven through me. Nicodemus has a human moment where he says, well, maybe I just need to stand up for Jesus. And when he stands up for what God has commanded him to do, he gets shut down, he gets shot down, and his human fears take over. But now, at the death of Jesus Christ, one of the most epic moments in this history, we're seeing a man who once was afraid stepping forth to claim the body of Christ. Who's seeing this? The Pharisees. The rabbis. All of the legal people that he works with. Nicodemus has now associated himself with the death and burial of Jesus Christ. He's committed political suicide. He's gone way over, and he gave the guy a proper burial. See, Nicodemus had an experience with the king. Nicodemus let the words of God work in his heart. And ultimately, Nicodemus became part of the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because we know how this story ends. And Nicodemus was just wasting his time wrapping that body up because in a couple minutes, Jesus is going to get up and he's going to declare victory over sin. And sin and death will lose its sting because of what Jesus did. And so the question I have for you, church, is where are you at in this process? Are you like Nicodemus? Are you afraid to be seen with Christ? Are you afraid to be caught up in what God's doing? Are, are, Are you really wanting to do that, but it's just fear holding you back? Or are you recognizing that when Christ calls you, He calls you to come and die with Him? He wants to take you on an epic adventure. And the only way to do this is not in your strength, but in the strength of God, in the strength of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's nighttime for some of you. And you can rationalize all you want. But brothers and sisters, we need to go to Jesus. We need to ask the things on our heart because, see, Jesus doesn't answer our question. He answers our needs. He doesn't dance. He gets right to it. And if you're struggling in your life, God wants to walk you through this process. He wants to bring you to being a part of the death and resurrection of His Son and ultimately setting you free and bringing you home to eternity with Him. Nicodemus is a great example for us. That life can be a struggle sometimes, isn't it? It's not always easy. But I promise you this, as C.S. Lewis has told us, no one said it was going to be easy, but I promise you it's good. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for that empty tomb, Lord. We thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to fill us and to empower us and to be with us now. And we pray, God, that you would just speak to our hearts as we look at the life of Nicodemus, God. There's so much to be learned there. There's so much packed. And I pray that we would all go home today and reread John 2 and 3. And that we would just drink in all that you're saying there, that you didn't come to condemn the world. You came to save the world. And that whoever confesses you as Lord will have eternal life. God, help us to not be embarrassed of that. Help us to not be afraid to do that. But give us the strength and the courage and the faith that we need to believe, God. We do love you. And we do want to be a part of your resurrection. Amen.